0: Let's go to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. If you will. John chapter 7, 1 through 9. We're going to finish up, Lord willing, uh, what we introduced last week. And then, as we shared last week, I think uh, we're going to... uh, The next book that we're going to go through in in the Scriptures is Revelation. God willing, we're going to start that next week. We're going to go through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. So, let's, um, in honor and reverence of God's precious Word, if you're physically able, will you stand with me while we read from it? John chapter 7, verse 1 and following. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill Him now at the jews feast of tabernacles was at hand and his brothers therefore said to him depart from here and go into judea that your disciples may also also may see the works you are doing for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe in him and then jesus said to them my time has not yet come but your time is always ready Verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when He said these things to them, He remained in Galilee. Now you may be seated. Thank you for standing. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus, Your precious Son glorify and lift high your worthy name we thank you for your word thank you for the opportunity to come and gather together here with brothers and sisters to worship you and to to affirm and um, and encourage one another and uh, thank you lord that all that thing all of those things are possible and happen when your people get together And we have but one purpose, and that is to come ultimately and and by Your grace to to worship You in spirit and in truth, to bring You great glory, the glory that You most certainly do. And Lord, as I prayed already this morning, uh, before we ever started, may You receive all the attention that uh, nobody else would but You. And uh, that, Father, You would give us ears to hear. We know that every time we open up the Bible, You're speaking. And so we got to figure that... If there's any kind of disconnect, it's not on your part, and it surely must be on ours. And so, Father, we ask you, Lord, as we come humbly before you, that you would indeed till up the soil of our heart, uh, water it, Lord, and make it uh, moist, and, uh, and take the weeds out of it, whatever have crept up there, we pray. Start to pull them out, Lord. And, and get them out so that the word falls down into a place and it finds itself easily, easily finds itself in the very depths of our heart. That it takes root there. And if Father, there are no other weeds and other things that are implanted there from the enemy and from lies that we we, we believe um, to 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 choke it or to get in the way of it, so that it does bring fruit to maturity, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, you would, that the, the, the Word would take root downward so that we would bear fruit upward. And we thank you, Lord, for, uh, again, the expectation that we can have that when we open your book, we're encountering you. And we're hearing from you. And this is the way you've if so ordained it, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so, Lord, help us to listen up. And you speak and take complete charge and complete control of this moment for your glory. Thank you so very much for your overwhelming love. And thank you that it was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're loved by our God, redeemed by Him, to your glory and certainly our eternal good. May your name be praised forevermore. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I posed the question last week, does the world hate you? And if not, why not? I know that can be easily misunderstood and taken to places that the Bible doesn't take it. We don't set out to have an adversarial relationship with the world. It is that our faith, though, is adversarial. The world is not only at odds with us, but the world hates us. It's amazing how we can see things in the media that happen to Christians and we can hear How that maybe other faiths are more tolerated in Christianity, and we drop our jaw and we act surprised. And we go, Wow, why does that happen? And we get all up in arms. And yet, the Lord wrote it clearly in His book that why would you expect otherwise? I mean, do you have an expectation that it should be different? Especially in the hyper secularism of our culture. What do you think? Do you think that uh, the world is just going to bow down at the feet of Jesus and affirm our faith? Or is it going to oppose it to the very end? It's going to oppose it to the very end. And Jesus posed the question here that gives us the insight as to why the world does hate us. It's very simple. It's not some complicated formula that we have to plug in and find the answer. It's given to us very plainly, very succinctly, and open to... The understanding of even a child. As a matter of fact, the child could probably understand it better than oftentimes we as adults can. And it's found here when Jesus is responding to His own siblings who did not believe in Him at this time. They were not believers, although they were raised with Him. He was the firstborn in the household, so they knew something was different with Him. He didn't nail a nail the way other people nailed one. I don't know how He did it, and it was ordinary. But everything that Jesus touches is extraordinary. And they knew that he never did give mom and dad a problem. He never was rebellious. He always honored his parents. And he always did the right thing. So surely he must have taken notice that something was different about his life. But it wasn't until after he was raised from the dead that they believed. As a matter of fact, like we talked about last week in summary, they thought he was a lunatic. And they thought he was a loose cannon. Stop this. You're on a tangent these claims that you're making and all this kind of stuff and just come back home. Run the family business because you're going to get yourself killed. You're going to get yourself in trouble. You'll have people that do that to you in your life in your Christian walk. You know, you keep on with this. You're going to get yourself killed. I mean, you're just going to get, you're going to marginalize everybody. Maybe you'll get over this. Maybe it's a it's a, it's a season of time that you've gone through and you got indigestion and it got stuck and uh, sooner or later you'll get Beyond it, take some Pepto Bismol, but for goodness' sake, quit this mess. It's going to get yourself killed. And it will. And it will. The Bible says a man who loves his life will lose it. A man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So if you're going to follow me, that goes with the program. But the grace that comes from that and the peace that comes from that and the joy that comes from that and the glory that God stands to gain from our lives is all well worth it. But aren't we to count the cost? Doesn't the Bible say to do that? Why though? Why? Well, the reason the world hates us, as we talked about last week, if we're walking in fellowship with the Lord and we're living witnesses to Him, is found in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why? Because apart from Christ, you're an ally with the world. You're one of them. And there is no hatred. But when once we get saved, then get identified with Christ and we're baptized into His life, the battle ensues. The lines are drawn. Sides are taken. Decisions are made. Commitments are embraced. Surrender comes. And then all of a sudden we slap on a jersey. And we make a decision that I have decided to follow Jesus. The cross before me and the world behind me. But I've decided to follow Jesus. What is the testimony that draws the hatred of the world? Well, here it is. It hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. I don't know if many of you are familiar with James Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, but he was the pastor for many years at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dr. Kennedy had... A thriving wonderful ministry for many years there at coral ridge he's in heaven now and matter of fact he's the one that many of you if you've been around christian circles long enough to know he's the one that came up with or god gave the program feel you'll remember it probably evangelism explosion he's the one that wrote that program the tr- evangelism training program that many people were equipped to share their faith i've been through it a couple of times myself it's wonderful Dr. Kennedy started at Coral Ridge many years ago, and he had, uh, he had gotten, gotten saved through a radio broadcast, of all things. Dr. Barnhouse was preaching, and he heard him on the radio. and He got saved. And when he first got to uh, Coral Ridge, Dr. Kennedy was the type of guy, he must have had 15 degrees. you know. He had a Ph.D. in everything. And he was a brainy guy, smart guy. love the Lord, but just brainy. And so he was equipped with all the arguments and all the apologetics and, and all the things that one might expect you need to arm yourself with in order to be an effective witness, uh, which is not true, by the way. But he had started there at Coral Ridge, and he was in the area, and he was trying to get to know the folks and get familiar And he found out the name of the greatest skeptic in that region. Uh, He was a known um, atheist and apparently had some popularity or notoriety in the area and had well-oiled arguments against Christian faith that he just loved to uh, spar with people with. And Dr. Kennedy found out about him. And he said, oh boy. So he sharpened uh, his... uh, his arguments and got his gun and loaded it and went to go see him. And he said, if there's anybody that can talk this man to Christian faith, it's me. I can do it. I'll get him. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll deliver the punch. And of course he sat there and they went through all the thing and they sat there for three hours and uh, he went in there believing one thing Dr. Kennedy did. He came out still believing the same thing. And the guy he went to see believed one way and when he would have left, he still believed the same way. And uh, so he got back and they were having a Wednesday night dinner at Coleridge. And uh, and he was in the line and somebody said, Pastor, what would you do today? Somebody that's been there for a long time. Well, I went to see so-and-so. He said, was he sober? He said, what do you mean by that? He said, he's the biggest drunk in South Florida. He's known to be the biggest drunk in South Florida. And... Uh, Aside from the well-finely-tuned arguments he had against Christianity, he was an alcoholic. And Dr. Kennedy, it hit him. And I want you to remember this. And this is true. People would rather be known as skeptics than sinners. Bertram Russell who wrote a uh, book about his atheism. And many of you maybe have heard of Bertram Russell. And he had all these fine-tuned arguments. And he was a brainy guy too. And he's always feared by the Christian community because you know he was, had this giant philosophical mind. But what was also true about Bertram Russell was he was a flagrant adulterer. And so he was very unfaithful to his wife and had numerous affairs. He was a highly immoral man. And so all his arguments against Christian faith were but a decoy, were but a, a, a way, an attempt of the enemy to get everybody off the subject so that the real subject is never addressed, and that is that he was, like you and I, a sinner. See, it sounds more thoughtful and more um, um, searching and more uh, noble To be known as a skeptic Than it does to be simply known as a Sinner And that's what Jesus said The reason I'm in trouble With this world And the reason they'll ultimately put me on the cross Is right here Because I come And my mere presence here Testifies to this world That Their works are evil And nobody wants to hear that So we've picked up on that In the Christian community. And so what the church has become is the church has become a corporate enterprise, a corporate business, a business is what it is. The church is a business in general in our culture. And rather than looking at converts and looking to convert somebody, we look at people as consumers. So in order to get them to buy our product and be interested in our product, we've got to find out and survey to them What they want. And then we'll take bits and pieces of the gospel and serve up to them a product that will meet their felt needs. And so by doing that now, rather than converting and looking for converts, we're just looking for somebody to be churched. We want them to go from being unchurched to churched. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've ever heard those phrases in ministry, churched and unchurched. It's a new phenomenon. But since I've been in ministry, I've been in so many ministry meetings where we've talked about the unchurched and the unchurched till one day I could stand it no longer. And I said, could we not retool our conversations and talk about the saved and the unsaved? Because if you take the un off a church and put somebody and just get the un off of there, if we could just get rid of that un, that un, that caused more problems for us, that un, let's wipe away the un and we'll get them over here to church and then we can give them confidence about going to heaven when they have no biblical reason to have it. That's why. That's why. That's why professing Christians... Look exactly the way the world does because we're full of people who are unconverted. I did not, and I never see in the Bible where Jesus says, I came to church people. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so if we're not careful, we'll be caught up in that vortex we will see people, if we begin to care, not as those who need to be converted, but a consumer who needs to buy our product. And we'll come up with a product that's palatable for them, that, a gospel that appeals to their flesh, and we do that by skipping over their need to repent and jumping to, right to, the cross and the love that was expressed there. I'll tell you something right now. If God's not just, The cross was a vicious act. And if God's not just, then your salvation and my salvation and His grace is polluted and it means absolutely nothing if God's not just. There's no way you can appreciate being saved until you first appreciate what it means. I wouldn't know what you know to be lost. The gospel cost people everything, those who embraced it. So what is the temptation? That we would be ashamed of it. And to be ashamed of it is to contort it, to, to twist it around so that we can somehow or another be apologetic and not come to terms with the truth about a man and woman and boy and girl need to repent. You know what? Why would Paul bother to say, In Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the implication? The implication is that you could be tempted to be ashamed of it. That's the implication. That doesn't mean you don't believe it. It doesn't mean you're not converted. But we can buy into the spirit of the age and become almost ashamed of it. We talked about the fact that another subtle message of the enemy and a tactic of the enemy is to put God on trial rather than man. The gospel puts man on trial, not God. We, 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 we treat it as if God's got to answer for himself. God, you got some explaining to do, like they would say where I come from. No, you got some repenting to do if you don't know him. It is his justice that leads to repentance. And that leads to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to life. The gospel does not put God on trial. The gospel is a precursor to judgment one day where man is going to stand trial. But we stand there and we ask these arrogant questions of God and do our foot like that. John Calvin, like we talked about last week, said that that a guilty conscience is the mother of all heresy. That's the truth. That's the truth. You know what? Every contortion of the gospel, every twisting of it, every turning, every shadow, I know what you're sometimes thinking. Oh, that means if we don't get the gospel exactly right, people won't be converted? I didn't say that. But I can tell you this. If we don't get the gospel right, we're going to be held accountable for what we say. We're going to be held accountable and stand before God. We're not supposed to be ignorant of these things. Let me ask you a question. If you are a a mechanic, you're concerned about how cars operate. If you're a Christian, you should be concerned about the gospel. What does it mean? I want to be familiar with it. I don't want to be lackluster about it. Is the gospel the reason why you and I know that if our hearts stop beating right now, we go to heaven? Well, then what makes anything any more important than that? that to understand the DNA of our faith. What does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be lost? What does the word repent mean? What does belief mean? How is it used in the Bible? How does God save? Is He mighty to save? Can He save? If so, how does He do it? Did He save me? Yeah! Inform me of it. I want to know the tenets of my faith. I want to know Him in other words. You think that poverty in the early church occurred just because it was a sign of the times, and they didn't have the influence that we have? You know why poverty occurred in the early church? Because persecution broke out. And the once, the when once you said that you were going to follow Jesus Christ, it put you in hard way. That's why Paul was talking about the giving among churches and the sharing among churches. Why? Because the gospel cost them everything. It didn't cost them everything to be saved, but their profession of faith cost them everything. It's not the price that we pay that saves us. It's the price that Christ paid. But having once been saved, then to remain in that belief means there's a price for doing it. You count the cost I'm afraid that many of us have counted the cost and said thanks, but no thanks. Don't involve me in that. Look at John, you know, chapter 3. We looked at it last week. But I don't believe we can look at this without looking at John chapter 3. Jesus said, I testify of this. The deeds are evil. John chapter 3 verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. World, hatred, there it is. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Worldly people who are caught up in this world do not appreciate the truth and don't have an appetite for it, and don't want to know it. And worldly Christians, when confronted with the truth, will get mad at you for confronting them. I'm going to tell you this right now. A worldly Christian causes more problems for the body of Christ than anybody else. Somebody who's openly pagan, man, hey, we know what they look like. But the world, the one that's, that's embracing the world and Jesus at the same time and trying to come up with a theology, that will accommodate that. The Bible says a wise man They'll love you for rebuking him, but a fool will hate you for it. See, the issue is this. The problem gives rise to the provision, which gives rise to praise. The problem, what is it? I don't have enough money. I'm not loved. I don't have an explanation for evil. I'm mad. I'm dysfunctional. What's the problem? The problem is sin. Sin. And that gives rise to the provision. And the provision, when embraced, gives rise to praise. This is why, so much so in our churches, we're so program-oriented, we're so business-like that when the parishioner comes in, we've got to serve it up to his liking. Because they got in that way. We sold you a bill of goods based on a product that we offered you. Now we've got to continue to serve up the product to your liking. Otherwise, you will go to another company. And there's some others down the street. And they'll serve it up for you. And they might do it better. Or their sound system might be more advanced than ours. Or they might have a better soloist or a better keyboard player or somebody who can tune it and turn it up and get with it. And so let's just accommodate. Let's spend the money. Let's do all of that. And the reason we're doing it many times is because we're trying to minister to people who are unregenerate. When I started in ministry, I'm here to tell you, I found out quickly. I'd have been better off to have an MBA than a Master of Divinity. I mean it. I thought I left that stuff at Wachovia. We left there, I I was 16 years, I was in the banking business. I get into the church and think, wow, this is going to be considerably different. And I found out, wow, it's not considerably different. We're just reading the same books, good to great. You know, stuff like that. And we're reading the same books. We're talking the exact same thing. We go through a staff meeting and never open the Bible. I thought, I thought, this is going to be different. I don't blame Wachovia for in that way. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to make money for the shareholders. Have at it. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But God doesn't have stockholders or boards of directors. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And He wants converts. And He died to purchase them. And His death being something. It doesn't mean anything if there's not evil. He didn't have any reason to come if we're not evil. He didn't have any reason to do what He did were there not sin in me. They could come out no other way except through His blood. That's the provision. Could it be that's why we're so lame in our worship is because we're so consumer oriented. We bought into it. We've been around it enough. Could it be that we've lost our joy and zeal for salvation and so much so that we don't bother to share it with somebody else? We cut a deal with the world. We're too busy. We want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed. We want to fit in. Or we just want to get out of the way and sequester ourselves, both of which are wrong. The problem gives rise to the provision. The provision gives rise to praise. Look at Luke chapter 7 verse 40. Oh, let the fans flame again in your life. Dare to remember for just one minute what it was like to be lost. Dare to remember what it was like to be hopeless. Dare to remember what it was like to not know what was going to happen to you when you die. Dare to remember what it was like to not know God or even know that He was knowable. Dare what it was like to remember that you did not see Christ as a relationship. You saw Him as religion. You did not know that God could be known. You did not know that God wanted To know you and you to know Him. And you didn't know the lengths in which He would go to do it. Don't forget that. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So He said, teacher, say it. Teacher, say it. Having dinner with Jesus and you're calling Him a teacher. Wow. Maybe Lord? I don't know. Just saying. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they had nothing with which to repay, freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman is anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sin. And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Oh, the peace that she never could find and always evaded her because of what? Sin was now hers because of Jesus. Do you think she ever got over that? I'm going tell you right now, I'd love to be labeled as a Christian who got saved and never got over it. That's a prayer for my children. They've heard the gospel so many times. When they get saved and the ones that are saved, I want them to never get over it. I don't know of another way to not get over it except to be anchored in God's Word. I think maybe the, maybe sometimes we slip into complacency with the gospel and the world doesn't hate us because we've gotten over getting saved. We're supposed to make things clear, you all. John the Baptist came to make things clear. We can follow in his footsteps. To make straight the ways of the Lord. To show who He is. Not in shadows and pastels, but in bold colors. As saying, this is Him. Look to Him and you will be saved. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40. This is speaking of John the Baptist in verse 3. This is quoted in the New Testament, speaking of his ministry. Look what it says about him. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And He said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. Here's what we've done, and we've talked about this before. We take our sword. Who does this? Who in the world does this? Who in their right mind would do this? Any, any army. The most inept, poorly funded, pushover army in the world would not take their weapons and yield them over and take their advantage and give it to the enemy. But we do that in Christianity all the time. This is our sword. And what do we do? We go over there and say, Okay, here's, here, here it is. You can have that. Now, let's have it. Come on. Put them up, devil. is that ridiculous? That's ridiculous. The Word of the Lord stands forever. We need to be armed. We are armed with the Word of God. And this is our message. And that way, every valley is brought up. And every mountain is put down. So for what reason? So that Jesus Christ can be clearly seen wherever you are. That's what that means. I'm going to tear the mountain down through you so that whatever is obscuring somebody's vision of the real me is out of the way if they're on the mountain. Everything's going great. You're prosperous. You got everything. You got the world at your feet. You're up on the mountain. I'm going to take that mountain out from under you so you can see who I really am. Those in the valley who are destitute and don't really know why and really understand why. I'm going to take that valley and I'm going to raise it up to the point that every one of you are at eye level. Because this is the deal. The ground is level at the foot of that place right there. It's level. I don't care who you are. The Bible says He's able to save to the utmost those who come to God through Him. One commentator said, He's able to save from the uttermost to the guttermost and everybody in between. Let's say, that's Him. That's what John the Baptist said. He was so full of the Holy Spirit... Then when He was in His mother's womb and He heard Mary's voice who was carrying our Savior Himself in her belly, He leaped in her womb because He was full of the Holy Spirit for the moment He was conceived, the Bible says. And He leaped when He heard that voice. That's Him! When He saw Him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is one way and it's Him. And the, we, he, I'm going to give His testimony. Let's give it. Let's tell a dying world that their deeds are evil. That they need to repent. But that makes God's provision all the more lovely. Because God did do something about it. God did not leave us in our sin. He sent His Son to die on the cross, no less. Oh, do we have a message. That's the testimony. But that testimony, dear ones, there's no way around it. You can't figure out a way around it. That testimony will get you in trouble. It will. It will. And I believe that's why we dodge so much trouble. We don't want, we'd rather just not get involved in it. I don't mean that you go out like some... You know I don't mean this, but let's say it out loud so maybe I won't be accused of it. doesn't mean you go outside looking for trouble. boy, this world, I'm there and we're the enemies. Come on, I'm going to have at you. We compassionately reach out to people because we see them in one of two categories. They're either saved or they need to be. That's it. You're either in Adam and condemned or you're in Christ or you're justified. Period. There's no mutation. There's nothing in the middle. There are no hybrid people. There are no zombies walking around. I mean, You're either one or the other. You're either in Christ You're justified, or you're Adam. you're condemned. Make it straight. Take the mountains and pull them down through the gospel. Take the valleys and lift them up through the gospel. And point to Him. And stand on the the edge of the universe at Taco Bell, where Ashley is, and and Chick-fil-A, where Brooke is now. And stand there and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to walk and take those mountains and take them down and lift up those valleys so everybody is at a level place because everybody needs to be saved. The testimony. You want to see confirmation of that testimony? Look at 2 Timothy. Timothy was, was Paul's son in the faith. Paul led Timothy to faith in Christ. Obviously, from Second Timothy, he got wind that Timothy was discouraged. could have been one of three or four different reasons. Let's speculate. False teaching that was encroaching at Ephesus. And he was dealing with false teachers. And he probably felt by himself a lot, thinking that he alone was standing for the truth. He was persecuted. And he knew by following Paul, man, this is going to get me in trouble. The one moment I mentioned that the people around you are evil and they need to repent. They don't like that. That's not Dale Carnegie. How to win friends and influence people. It's just not. And he was discouraged. So much so that he'd let his spiritual gift, which was preaching and teaching, exhortation, it started to go to waste. And the Apostle Paul said Well, just stir it up. Light the fire again is what that literally means. He said, you're discouraged. But let me tell you this. Look what he says right here. How'd you like to get this from your mentor? Therefore, verse 8 chapter 1 verse 8 therefore do not be ashamed what of the what the testimony of our Lord does that sound familiar do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord what's the testimony of our Lord look at John chapter 7 go back to John chapter just hold your hand there if you don't mind Look at John chapter 7, what we just read. John 7, verse 7. Look what it says. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I what? What's the Lord's testimony? The <laughs> deeds are evil. <laughs> there it is. Don't be ashamed of that testimony. You know why? I know your tendency, Timothy. Timothy was probably a kind of a weak, physically young man. And was probably frail and given to illness. Kind of sickly a little bit, and Paul loved him dearly. And he said, "You know what, Timothy? I know you have it. You have a, You can be timid. You can, but that's not the spirit God's given you. But you can be timid. And be, you can shy away from what you know is right." And that testimony is this: the testimony of our Lord is that the world's deeds are evil. And he said, "Don't be ashamed of that testimony. Look what it says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord." What is it? These are evil. I'm God. Jesus says. Nor of me, his prisoner. And can you imagine this? Somebody write a letter. You want want somebody to follow in your footsteps? Share with me in the fame and the wealth. Because Timothy, I'm telling you, just hang in there. If you could write a book, get it to Zonderman. And they'll publish it for you and put it all throughout the bookstores and you'll probably be on talk radio and you can be famous like me and line your pockets with money because after all, that's what God wants for you and just float to heaven on a bed of ease, comfort, and pleasure and compromise for the rest of your life because it'll work good for you. As for me. Can you imagine this kind of invitation? Listen to the invitation. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me as prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. Come on, buddy. Pony up. Let's go suffer. Yay! That's what he's saying. I'm telling you right now, I believe that's the way has written. I've read this a blue million times. And I believe it was written like that. Share with me. Come on. You're not going to imagine the joy the transcendent joy that will be yours if you share it with me. Come on, you want to find out what God's love is all about? You'll never find out. Hey, hey, the promised land is yours by title deed, but it is received through obedience. Share with me. Why does that joy evade us? A couple of things. I'm gonna tell you right now. You'd have to be better than Anthony Robbins to pull that off. It must be that God lives in both of them for that to be a powerful message. It must be that must be God lives in you. If you receive that, go. Ah, let me be a part of it. Sign me up. Number one. This is some suggestions. Passionately pursue God in His Word. Passionately pursue God in His Word. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Passionately pursue God in His Word. Passionately pursue God in His Word. Passionately pursue God in His Word. Passionately, passionately pursue God in His Word. Passionately. Not so you can teach it to somebody else. Not so that you can have platforms. No! Passionately pursue it. To know Him. God, I want to know You. Inform me personally. God does not have grandchildren. God is not a grandfather. He only has children. I don't want to know Him. I love Brother Pat. I respect Him. I thank God for Him. He's an incredible encouragement in my life. I believe He loves the Lord. But I don't want to know God through past experience. My experience with God might be short up and encouraged by His... But I'm selfish about that. I want to know Him. Not just so I can teach the Bible here on Sunday morning. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Devotionally sitting at His feet. Passionately then, what will happen is, the fire and the stirring in your heart will come because of the salvation you know is first yours. And your gratitude will start to come back. Somebody has lost their gratitude. Let's do not let it go. You'll lose it if you're not careful. Oh! Well, of all the Christian graces there are, that's probably the number one. Gratitude. God, you let me in. Not by accident. You planned it. Me. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Let me ask you a question. How is the word of God going to run swiftly through you if it's not put, first put in you? That's a fairly logical question. How am I going to be a conduit for the word unless the word's being deposited in me? It's not going to happen. And then, dear ones, prayer. Prayer. The overflow of that. Do you know what? Prayer, prayer, parents, and the word. Teach your children that those are not rites or rituals, but those are the means by which they connect with God. Otherwise, he'll be seen as distant, unknowable, or this will just be a routine. I don't want it to be a routine. Oh no. No, 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 no. You connect with God. You can hear from Him through His Word and He'll hear you. You relate to Him through prayer. And we start praying for those that don't know the Lord and start praying for our own faithfulness and obedience to the Gospel. It takes that. It's a supernatural Word. That's the reason we put on the prayer request every week. God, give us boldness. Sorry. Give us opportunities to share the Gospel. Protect us in those opportunities and give us boldness when they come. It's going to get you in trouble. Everybody's not going to like you. But you know what? When they get mad at you, keep liking them. And then they'll go, why do you still like me? Because I was ugly to you. I've been ugly to you. I've treated you like dirt. And you still keep coming back for more. What's wrong with you? Nothing scares you off. You crazy? If we're timid about sharing the gospel, you're in good company. Let's just go there for a minute. We talked about it last week, First Corinthians, chapter two, verse one. First Corinthians, chapter two. I remember I was going in to see a lady who was on her deathbed, and uh, you never know what you're going to encounter when you go into a situation like that. You could have family around who do not appreciate your presence there, and I knew that more than likely that was going to be one of the cases. This family was new age; they were new age. I'm talking about crystals and ooh, all that kind of stuff. You know, they were like new age everything. You know the, the pillows are alive and we can talk to them and stuff like that. They were just heaped in that mess. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to go into in here. I was at St. Joseph's Hospital I'll never forget it. And God reminded me because I was like this. I'm just shaking. I'm like, boy, this, this is going to be potentially uncomfortable to say the least. And this one woman's dying. I mean, she, they know she's dying unless there's some supernatural, unexplainable thing which could have happened. This woman's dying and she's a new agent. And I remember the Lord reminding me of this. And he just kind of gently said, Now you're in good company. Because look what the Apostle Paul said. And brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with the excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you. Here we go with that word testimony again. The testimony of God. What's the testimony of God? The deeds are evil. Deeds are evil. Okay. So he knew they were going to appreciate that, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verse three. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God I got shed of all that anxiety walked in there and come to find out she'd already gotten saved somebody got there her I with all went that for nothing (laughs) but I did wind up getting to preach her funeral and her daughter told me before we went out she said I'll tell you something right now I don't want any of this Jesus stuff in that funeral we're back in the back. We're praying. I said, let me tell you this. I'm going to get up there and I'm going to share what I know your mother would want shared. That's what I'm going to do. And God kept her subdued. And we had an opportunity to share the gospel of a funeral with the whole, the whole family there. I was trembling then too. But I'm going to tell you something right now. It ain't got nothing to do with us. It's got to do with Him. But that boldness that comes, it will come if we take the first step If we just take the first step, so passionately pursuing the word prayer, and then pursue righteousness, pursue holy living. You know when you confront somebody about sin and they're apathetic toward it, or maybe it's somebody that they're responsible for and they're apathetic toward it, it more than likely it's because they're doing it themselves. And I have seen people, I know a recent example of somebody who has said, I am apostate, only to find out that the apostasy is accompanied by more than likely immoral lifestyle. Okay, they go hand in hand. I mean, I can't stand it. I mean, I'm ruined. I can't continue to stay in your circles and still live like I'm living. But I prefer to live like I'm living, so I must be something got to give. So I guess I'll get out of the circle. Pursue righteousness. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. We'll hurry. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue it! The Bible says to pursue love. The Bible says to pursue righteousness. In most church circles, instead of fleeing youthful lusts, we celebrate them. (laughs) Don't we? Isn't it amazing? The Apostle Paul said, turn away from them and we're celebrating them. No, No wonder we got what we got. And prompts... If you listen to somebody long enough, they'll give away their fears. If you care to listen to somebody long enough, they will give away their fears. They will. You'll find out. And it could be. There's some issue or something. And listen for the prompts so that you can be connected with the Holy Spirit to the point where you can give witness of what He did for them on the cross. Passionately pursuing His Word. Prayer. And you know what? I missed on the prayer. I missed an important verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Now, <clears throat> I mean 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Everybody's familiar with this, but I, I, won't, I don't want to get it. But, but I've I, I actually asked for us to sing Stand Up for Stand Up for Jesus this morning because I felt it meshed perfect with this, this time in the Word. Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, you'll be never wanting there. Amen. And so the Apostle Paul gives us this truth about the gospel armor. And just at the end of it, look what he says in verse 18 praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication, for listen to this, for all the saints, and look at his prayer request, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may be speak boldly as I ought to speak. Don't you get the sense that central to the dressing he just did was to prepare him for the gospel. He asked for boldness to share. And guess what? It wasn't just an apostle asking for prayer for him. It said for all the saints boldness doesn't come naturally. For people who are bold in the flesh, it's brazen and it's fleshy and it's trumpeting them rather than him. But when you're in the Holy Spirit, it takes a spirit work to have the boldness to share when the opportunity comes. You will have an opportunity to share the gospel this week. You will. You'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. We've got to make a decision. We're going to court the favor of the world, continue to be in a practical friendship. We're not in positional friendship, but be in practical friendship with Him. Or are we going to trust Christ to speak the truth to Him? Because you'll remember, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, we're going to close with this. Jesus Christ gives us this great model of witnessing. The rich young ruler is in front of Him. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't you get the sense of the rich young ruler felt like he could pay God off. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How much is it now? We'll count it out for you. How much, What do I do to inherit eternal life? Because you can't name it. You got a save this garment. You want some new clothes? You know, what can I do? And Jesus went right to him and said, took the law to expose his wicked, darkened heart and got all the way to the end. The only commandment he left out was thou shalt not covet because he knew That that was his problem. He exposed his problem to him. But look at the motivation for all of it. Verse 21. Then Jesus looked at him and loved him. Loved him. Several years ago when Andrew was much smaller, we had a neighbor that lives across the street from us, catty-cornered. And they had a son who was troubled. It was a um, home of turmoil. And you could see it. I mean, every day you could see it. And this little boy was just angry. And uh, we knew where all that came from. But Andrew was a little bit innocent fellow. And he really took a liking to this little boy. And Andrew was too little less to know that this boy couldn't stand him. So... He would come, I remember seeing him come out of the house many times and go, Mikayla, Mikayla, like that, and holler at him. And Andrew would run out there to him and go see him. And the whole time you could tell that boy was ready to just punch him out. Like, get away from me, you little bothersome child, you. But Andrew was so naive, he had no idea that Michaela could not stand him. And so he was innocent. And so one day I come out, it's on a Saturday, I'll never forget it, and Andrew had a little tricycle thing. And he went over there to Michaela, and another friend was right there. And you know how friends will compromise when they're around other friends just to look cool. And this other little boy, who wouldn't have never acted like this, acted the same way as Michaela because he was kind of the ringleader. And he took, and they didn't know I was watching. And I just stepped out of the house. And I wanted to rescue him, but I just hesitated for a moment. But he took the handlebars of his bicycle, his little tricycle, and got right up in his face and shook it like that. And said, don't you know? Don't you know I don't have anything to do with you? Get out and get home from me. And it broke my heart. Because I looked at him and I thought, you don't know what a good friend you're turning away. Mm-hmm. And the Lord just hit me. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's what the world does with my son. It comes right in front of you. And offers you the free gift of eternal life. A friend will stick closer than a brother. And we take those handlebars, which are now crosses, and we shake that and say, get that away from me. The Father's heart. Not for His behalf, but for the behalf of those in the eternity He awaits who grab hold of that cross and throw it away. You know what? Keep offering them the gift. Keep offering it to them. Slide it back. And even if they keep sliding it back to you, this is what we do. You did this before you got saved. And you go. Just keep sliding it. Don't quit. And if they never get saved, don't ever... Let it be that you go to your deathbed having done this. But you keep keep doing it like that. Because salvation is a free gift. You don't earn it or deserve it. And they know not what they do. Can you not just settle there? They don't know what they're doing. And until God wakes them up, keep pushing it back. If they hit you, say, well, hit this side here so we'll have... An even red spot. If they mar your reputation, God knows. Because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus, who is the light of the world. Are you a friend of the world? If not, are you an enemy of the world? If not, Father, thank you for your many blessings and your great love for us. God, may we passionately pursue you in your word. May we pray, Lord. We have a tendency to be in situations where we're ashamed, we cower down. You forgive us for that. But may those situations become few and far between. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share the gospel protect us in those opportunities and dear Lord give us boldness when they come Lord help us to pursue righteousness so we're walking in a holy walk filled with the Holy Spirit making the most of every opportunity redeeming the time because the days are evil to give witness of your son God help us to be in environments where you work through us to take the mountains down for those who are on the top of them and to take the valleys and bring them up to surface level because for those who are in them, and to point a straight trajectory right to you. Help us to keep offering the gift because you're offering the gift. It's not us. It's offering. It's you. And there was a time when we grabbed the crossbars of the cross and threw it away just like that. There was a time when we pushed. But thank you that your glove and your grace broke through. just also a Savior. Father, I pray that we'll listen to the prompts of the Holy Spirit this week, this day, and when it's pitched down the middle, give us the spiritual eyes to see it, and we can bear witness, if it's two sentences or 22 paragraphs, that we bear witness of the testimony of the gospel of your dear Son.